Okay, hi everybody. Welcome to the November, or let's call it the summer edition of ANZ Agri Insights. My name's Mark Bennett. I'm joined by our uh, researchers and economists today, um, Madeline Swan, Michael Whitehead, Alana Barrett, and Adelaide Timbrell. So a wrap of key agri commodities, uh, a bit on the thematics and uh, our ever important and changing economic conditions as well. So look forward to getting through that. Um, we're at a really critical time of the year as the winter harvest crops uh, mature. We've got harvest started in the earlier regions. And uh, while we do have some crop coming off in really good condition, there are other areas, of course, that have been uh, really heavily impacted by flood waters and rain. So we do hope for the best for all those that are impacted there. It will have an impact on crop tonnage and ultimate quality. Perhaps we'd love it to stop raining, not just for the winter crop harvest, but also as we try and contemplate a summer crop planting in the northern half and even as the fresh produce crops come in in the southern half of um, the country as well over the next, over the summer months. Uh, we do not want um, persistent rain getting in the way of yield quality or anything else. So it's a it's an absolute watch. It's a bit hard to look forward into next year at the moment with so much going on. Um, but it is from a yield perspective overall with water in system and great growing conditions through spring. Um, still a chance of an incredibly strong harvest result, um, if only we could get things in clean. Um, we still have pretty strong underlying markets globally for most of our produce, which, which is great. Um, we see volatility in markets still with um, geopolitical um, interruption or, or uncertainty and also the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. So. Uh, it's almost a daily watch on on some of the ebbs and flows on all of this, and um, it will be really critical for our growers and trade to try and navigate the the troughs in any of that, but also capitalise on the opportunities that might present as well as those ebbs and flows of of trade and volume take place. Um, we do have high costs in system. We've got increasing interest rates still confronting our borrowers. Much welcome. Um, much welcomed by our investors as well. Uh, and really, uh, sky's still the limit uh, looking forward if only we'll continue to get good seasons. So uh, I, just right on the edge, uh, a lot of positivity around and a lot of hope really to uh, get through things quickly at harvest and get a break and contemplate the next season all over again as we get into Jan and Feb. Um, we are talking greener pastures too um, for the first time on the airwaves as well. Um, a reflection on where we've come since the greener pastures one edition came out uh, in around 2011, I think it was. Um, but geolots changed and it's a reflection on the capital flows, the performance of the agri-industry, uh, the composition of our agri-industry and the key drivers for success uh, as we still contemplate what a 2050 would look like. So um, a, a lot of opportunity in all of that, of course, there always has been, but it is 
a race. It is competitive and uh, we're working through all of the elements that work for us and against us in all of that. But I mean, I guess the report card would be that we're going incredibly well, surpassing expectation and um, and how fantastic is that? Um, there's still a chance for that, but is it realistic to maintain the trajectory? Well, uh, let's wait and see and let's hear specifically from Michael and the rest of our team as we get through that and bring it to market with you over the next weeks, but also a number of months, I'm sure. So with that, uh, I will now introduce Adelaide Timbrell to the stand uh, to talk economics. Thanks, Adelaide. Over to you. Thanks, Mark. So lots of things happening in the economy at the moment with inflation still being the key challenge. So we have upgraded our consumer price index forecasts um, with headline inflation peaking at the end of this year at 8% year on year. In the near term, flooding effects, higher fuel and electricity prices, the lower Australian dollar, as well as lots of consumer spending within Australia are all going to be contributing to that really strong inflation. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, though. We think inflation will start to decelerate next year. Doesn't mean things will get cheaper, although hopefully certain things like fuel will, um, but it means that the overall speed of prices getting higher will start to slow. Uh, consumer confidence is already very, very, very low. Inflation expectations by households in Australia are at a record high, but it's not actually influencing spending all that much. So if you ask people if they're worried, they're going to say yes, but if you have a look into their bank transactions, it's going to look like a big no. So we're seeing ANZ Observe Spending show to pick up in November. We'll be watching very closely to see how Black Friday and Christmas go to understand how people are spending this year and how much the Reserve Bank will be forced to keep increasing interest rates to slow us down. We're currently forecasting that the Reserve Bank will have another four interest rate increases up its sleeve, one in December and then three in the first half of next year, bringing the cash rate to 3.85%. That's really going to squeeze uh, households, uh, increase their interest payments to around 11% of income on average, and it will slow the economy as well. So 2023 is really where, gonna, where we're going to start seeing the penny drop there. It's not going to mean a real abatement of the labour shortage, though. The unemployment rate is currently at 3.5%. We think there's scope for that to get a little bit tighter still. There are 470,000 vacant jobs as at August in the latest quarterly data. So still lots of employers screaming out for workers. We know that immigration will come back. Uh, next year and will help with skills matching to an extent, but because there are just so many employers out there looking for workers, uh, immigration is not going to be the panacea if you are seeing labour shortages in your business. Uh, we're not seeing that reflected too much in wage growth so far, though we think that will pick up a little bit more, though average earnings per hour are growing at 5% year on year. So the cost of the same job is not growing much over time, but the average uh, hour of pay is going up because the average person is switching into a higher value job. This is one of the reasons that um, households in Australia are still spending so much money. When we look um, more globally, we are expecting to see a global slowdown in 2023 as well. Australia is not going to be the only 
one slowing down, um, there's going to be much higher risks of recession up in the Northern Hemisphere than there is here in Australia um, with, you know, the Fed and other central banks really delivering much stronger rate hikes than what we're seeing from the Reserve Bank. This is going to be one of the reasons that we think the uh, AUD is going to be under 70 cents against the USD all year through 2023. So we are expecting a, a little bit further of a dip between now and March next year to 64 cents uh, AUD USD and then drifting up to 68 cents at the end of the year. So great for exports, not so good for inflation because we just import so much, particularly in non-food in Australia. And if we can buy that for, you know, if we need more Australian dollars to buy that, that's going to increase prices and squeeze households further. Does it mean they'll spend less on food? probably not quite as much as what we're going to be seeing in terms of the slowdown in bigger things like holidays, you know, furniture, uh, cars, renovations. So we're still seeing really strong spending everywhere, but food is, is going to be the last one hit. And there generally are some consolation luxuries there as well, which means that agribusiness may actually not be quite as sensitive to, you know, the risk of an economic slowdown or even the small risk of a recession compared to other industries. All right. Thanks a lot, Adelaide. That's fantastic. Uh, a lot going on. In relation to currency, we see weakness in the Aussie versus the US dollar in that low 60s range, which at face value you say is really welcome and, and assisting our export competitiveness. But how, how does this play out for our major exporters, particularly as we consider other trading nations as we trade in other currencies? How's the Aussie performing in that regard? Yeah, so that's a really great question. And if we do look at the Australian dollar against the US dollar as a proxy for what the Australian dollar is doing in the rest of the world, we're probably getting a picture that is a little bit more depreciation than what we're seeing on average. So if we think about the Australian dollar against other currencies, it has still fallen, but really not as sharply as what the Australian dollar is falling against the USD. So there has been some depreciation of the Australian dollar against all currencies, and that's because when the global risk outlook starts to be a little bit more cautious, that tends to hit our dollar to the downside. But the AUD USD also has this extra element where the US dollar in itself against all currencies has been really strong. US dollar is often seen as a safe haven when things go bad. And um, the Fed is also increasing interest rates very quickly in the US. They did 75 basis points worth of hikes in November, which means that the, you know, interest uh, that you get on US dollars in a bank account is higher than what we're seeing in places like Australia. So all of that together means that when we do look at the Australian dollar against the US dollar, it's not just about the Australian dollar being weak, it's also about the US dollar compared to our other export partners being strong. So when we look at you know what we're seeing against Asian currencies, for example, there's not quite as much of a fall. All right, now over to you, Maddie. Uh, we're going to start talking dairy. Uh, things have been incredibly strong, which has been very welcome for a little while now, but over to you to please inform us of uh, what we are seeing and what we can expect. Thanks, Mark. It's a bit of a tale of two markets at the moment um, in the dairy industry. I think we've all we've spoken about this for many months and we're all aware of the story of the really strong opening prices, uh, really high competition between processes for milk supply, um, and generally good conditions um, for the domestic producers. 
Um, but there are a few circumstances in the international markets which are giving a few people a little bit of pause for concern. Nothing too, nothing too difficult, but but just a little bit of a of a hiatus in the solid growth story that we've been seeing for quite some time. So if we just talk about the domestic market quickly, it's unsurprising, but um, domestic production for this time of year is down around six percent on this time last year. As I said, it's unsurprising given floods, lack of access to the farm gate for tankers, some people reporting dumping milk and so forth. So hopefully as we come into summer um, and we have full dams, full water allocations um, and hopefully a good season, we should see a good uptick in that production. Uh, other issues are still obviously input costs, fair mixed, fertiliser prices remain not quite as high as they were early in the year, but certainly stubbornly higher than they were, um, as well as grain prices, feed prices, which still remain relatively high as well. Although, again, we'll have to wait and see with the impact of the floods to see how that flows on to the um, amount of feed grain on the domestic market. The one thing I did want to talk about with, um, with the domestic market was um, a bit of the margin pressure that's obviously coming onto processes. We've seen a few announcements in recent weeks and months around processes reconsidering their processing capacity, their mix of factories, which factories they keep open, which they shut. So obviously a bit of time for um, reconsideration um, by the processes given this lower and persistently lower milk pool that Australia is producing. Um, there's obviously not enough liquid milk going around to fill um, all the processing capacity we have. So that will be a bit of a spanner in the works um, of some regional communities, unfortunately, and also lower that lower that demand for milk milk supply going forward into, into coming years. But as I said, if we look at the international market, which seems to be the, the more interesting one at the moment, um, there's been a real downward trend in global, uh, global prices, particularly in Oceania, so particularly in the global dairy trade auctions, since around about March. We had a good month during September, but that's turned around again and we've had downward downward prices on pressure. Now, a downward pressure on prices. Um, now, that's for many months, that was a result of China, China's demand for uh, milk powder and milk um, being lower as a result of their lockdowns and zero COVID policy. Um, now, it's also coming as a result of concern over global economic growth um, and a reduction in general, general consumer demand throughout the globe. Um, so we've now had the global dairy trade uh, indicated down to levels uh, not since, seen since January 2021. Now, that's no bad thing. January 2021 was doing pretty well. So it's not as if we're tanking or anything, but just a little bit of heat coming out of that market. Um, the interesting thing is this varies very significantly between regions. So the prices in EU, particularly for cheese, uh, but also for the other categories of dairy products, are much, much higher in the EU. And for some of them in the US than they are in Oceania. So Oceania is really obviously feeling the impact of that chart of being heavily reliant and, and focused on that China market and the China market having a, a lower demand than usual. So generally speaking, we've got global production being held up by the US. We've had a poor season in New Zealand. We've had a poor season in the EU. Um, so lower than, lower than expected um, production at the moment, that doesn't mean it won't turn around or can't turn around. But as we're going into the EU winter, uh, we're, we're also getting um, uh, that lower demand um, from from consumers flow through to the EU market, meaning that some of the EU surplus might end up in the global market. So that might actually put 
more milk onto the market than we expect. So it's a bit of a watch and see on the international market. It, 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 it's I would consider that it's just a bit of a readjustment for for uh, season and a readjustment for global global change in those economic growth parameters. But having said that, it's very different to what's going on in our domestic market, which for the moment is all positive. I think there's a lot in that, Maddie. Um, it, it's it's off its sort of top by the sound of it, and um, I mean, depending on how this sticks, I mean, you could be a bit controversial and ask, have our local processes overshot the mark on opening pricing, um, given the year still to complete? And um, if international markets are down, then, um, you know, processor efficiency and capacity to sort of pay and compete and all of that will be pretty a pretty interesting watch, I would say. Yeah, it, it'd certainly be the fear um, and, you know, most people would still remember 2015 where we had a booming domestic market and the international market, the bottom of the international market just fell away from us and it caught us by surprise. So I think there'd be a lot of people sitting back watching intently to make sure that that doesn't that that doesn't happen to us and that we don't that we're not shocked by any price movements going forward but so far from everything i've seen it's not a it, it's not a replication of those circumstances there isn't uh, a huge amount of uh, milk supply coming on the market from the eu which is what happened in 2015 which was the real driver of the price drop um, and so demand and supply still remains relatively tight it's just a bit of a readjustment um, for as i said for for those global new global growth parameters and, and of course, we are now a more uh, predominantly domestic-focused uh, industry, and with our own economic conditions holding strong, savings spending very strong, um, less exposed maybe to some of those downward global pressures that are emerging in other key economies. Yeah, absolutely. And and dairy is obviously a massive staple for Australian. Um, consumers. So it's unlikely that even in a slightly tougher economic time in Australia, it's unlikely that 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 um, consumption of dairy would, would um, fall off dramatically. Great. Thanks, Maddie. Okay, welcome, Michael. Over to you now. We're going to start with your expose of the grains industry. I touched on it in commentary earlier, but um, yeah, really critical point, isn't it? What are we seeing? Absolutely. Mark, um, grain was having a volatile enough year as it was. Uh, everything was uh, largely being driven by what was happening in Russia and the Ukraine. And then the rains came. They came in October. They kept going in November. And even as we go to air with this podcast, we're still waiting to see what has come out of them. Um, prior to the rain, we'd been forecasting, everyone in Australia had been forecasting the third bumper crop in a row, around a 60 million tonne overall grain and oilseed crop. Um, and of that, wheat was going to be about 34 and a half million tonnes. Uh, a minor drop in the crop forecast for last year, but that was just because things were going to go back to very good conditions as compared to the excellent conditions of last year. But what's going to happen now? Well, the water is still drying and going down in so much of the grain country on the East Coast. Not all of it, um, not all the uh, cropping regions, but certainly some um, very important parts of New South Wales and Victoria and some parts of Queensland too. Um, farmers right now are facing a few decisions, big decisions. 
how much of the paddock can they get into, uh, whether they should use fungicide, particularly considering they spent so much on inputs, fertiliser, herbicide and other things at the start of the year, and how much will their crops be impacted? How much will volume be impacted? How much will quality be impacted? And this isn't just going to impact farmers going forward, these big question marks. It's going to impact receival centres. It's going to impact grain handlers. Uh, how much will there be a downgrading quality of a lot of this grain from good protein grains down to um, different grades of feed grains? How much is this going to delay the harvest? And that's almost certainly going to happen. So will contractors be really in demand in a shorter space of time than they normally would be? Because normally the, the harvest has started around now in Northern Australia and Queensland and works its way south in a pretty good way. But how much is that going to be disrupted? And the fact that uh, the crop is still going to be pretty big, but if there's a change in quality and a change in grades, how's that going to impact where it's stored and how much it hits the, the ports as well. So all those things are yet to be played out. Yes, it will still be a big crop. Um, and yes, the crop very much out of WA in South Australia is looking like it's gonna be a terrific one in terms of volume and in terms of quality, but just what the impacts will be remains to be seen. Pretty hard to judge what you've got to sell too when you're looking at um, prices jumping around a bit and knowing exactly what you've got in terms of quality and where it's actually stored and whether you've got access to deliver at a at a time. Um, it becomes a bit of a guessing game, doesn't it? So it, it could be a really drawn out experience and a difficult one to manage in lots of ways. It becomes a guessing game for both sides of the equation. Uh, for those who are looking to see what they sell, um, you, there's that old adage for croppers that uh, you sell 30% in advance, 30% when it comes off, and, and well, the other third or so later on will hang on to it. Uh, but that's really up in the air this year because of the uncertainty. The other big part of that equation is at the other end too. For the big grain and oil seed users, whether it's the millers, uh, who are looking for that good quality food grain, whether it's the feed lotters and the fact that uh, the national cattle herd continues to go up and they're going to need a lot of feed, as are the other feed users, uh, how much will they be able to get or do they need to look at the economics of getting a lot more for the East Coast ones from across the other side of the country, um, whether they buy it now or potentially the other side of the equation, whether they think that there may be so much of the lesser quality grain around, the feed grain around, that maybe they hold off. There's a, a lot of judgments to be made there. The other point in terms of buying, and this is obviously the huge thing about grain, is Australia's export buyers. Now, they are still nervous about what's happening in Russia and the Ukraine as far as grain coming out, particularly the Southeast Asian buyers. And they are still very keen to get as much Australian grain as they can, being mindful of the limitations of grain coming out of our ports. So how much they will keep prices up to a degree, uh, how much they will get from here now or book ahead will also have a big impact and they will be watching the whole situation very closely. Yeah, I think it's as fascinating as ever and um, volume will be really key. And whilst we talk, you know, wheat as the proxy for grain and you mentioned canola, but, you know, the lentils and chickpea crops and other legumes um, going around, they're all sort of impacted in different ways. And um, a slow delayed harvest is one thing. Um, there's a bit of cost with a lot of mess that goes with being wet everywhere. 
and um, with a really big yield, it sort of takes your mind forward to next year as well around the input replacement and the costs that would go with that. Um, having had a really big season in most places and, and for a couple of years now um, for some. So, yeah, I, I think there's a, a lot in all of that. How do you see the the news and the um, the issues of Ukraine and are the boats getting out? Are they not? Will they or won't they? Um, is there any clear view on this or is it really just a matter of staying close to the news? That one, what's happening in the, the Ukraine area, continues to be a game of who's going to blink first. Uh, there were the early concerns at the start when the Ukraine issue started and the crisis started and prices went up. And then the market uh, gradually got used to it and then things opened up slowly and the market relaxed a bit. And then uh, in the past few weeks when Russia's decided to raise question marks about grain coming out again, prices went up less than they did in the past. The market's starting to get used to this, but that global uncertainty remains. There is uh, not much likelihood that grain prices will go down substantially in relation to that. And there is every likelihood that uh, unexpectedly, but certainly at different times, uh, just when the world thinks that things have started to even out there, something will come up again. It's a very good bargaining position uh, for the, the, um, the, the players in that part of the world. Thank you. Yeah, and um, and flexible storage and logistic solutions, uh, you know, win the day again, don't they? Uh, this time around, whether you're a a key um, a bulk uh, accumulator or buyer, or whether you're a, a farmer, so um, we wish everybody uh, the best in all of that, and um, we'll stay close to it. One one other thing I'll just throw in there is whilst watching what you've got coming in, and whilst you're looking to prices um holding off the cost of carry is sort of more expensive than it used to be as well and if you're using credit limits to to uh to get your timing right um you know the additional cost of of money uh today versus last season is reasonably significant so um there's a lot of factors at play here which will influence the judgment about what to sell when to sell and how to sell as as you talked about earlier. So we look forward to working with everyone as um, productively as we can through all of that to try and get the best possible outcomes. Uh, you mentioned, let's go to beef now. You, you mentioned beef as a big feed user. They'll be um, enjoying the look of a really big crop, um, uh, which would temper perhaps the price of grain that would go with that. Um, how are the markets holding up and what's playing out in the beef sector? Uh, the beef sector remains in some ways tied into what's happening with grain as well, and it has inevitably been impacted by rain, but nowhere near as much as grain and, and to a degree not as much as sheep. Uh, let's start with the markets. The Eastern Young Cattle Indicator, uh, the industry indicator that we've watched for years, that is looking like staying high. Uh, in a nutshell, even though the drought arguably finished two years ago, the rebuild is continuing. Uh, the herd is, is continuing to grow at a pretty strong rate, uh, forecast to be over 6% this year, uh, and even slowing down slightly, but still impressively around 5% going into next year. So uh, cattle producers are continuing to rebuild. They're continuing to buy. Uh, export demand, It's the demand is there uh, for different reasons. Uh, whether it's the restocking side, whether it's processor capacity, the export volumes are down, but the prices remain high. So that's looking good. 
what's going to be the impact of the rain on the cattle industry? Uh, could be a few things. Let's wait and see, as we are with grain, to see what happens when those paddocks dry out. Uh, for some producers, it could be difficult. They may have to rest some paddocks if pasture damage has been bad, uh, and therefore they may have to sell some cattle. Uh, or it, it may mean some impact on some weights. Uh, for others who are growing their own feed, it could be an impact there. They may have to buy in more supplementary feed. For other producers, uh, it may not necessarily be a bad thing uh, because if the soil moisture is retained and the damage isn't too bad, then they could see greener pastures going far further into summer than they're normally used to, which may mean they have to buy less feed and that they have better weights of cattle, particularly as the weaner sales uh, start to happen in Australia uh, around January, heading into February as well. So mixed, uh, mixed potential outcomes from the rain onto the cattle market. Um, overall, things continue to look strong. Overall, that demand remains there. Um, and, and as we say, going forward, if the herd grows, and particularly because we're starting to see that all-important female slaughter rate go up as well, there could be more beef for exports next year, um, and those export markets continue to want Australian beef. Thanks. And, and the industry is ever always alert to um, disease, uh, control and biosecurity measures that would prevent uh, an FMD outbreak. Uh, lumpy skin disease has been in the mix as well recently. It's less in the news, but ever present. But I think um, that has settled from a public news point of view, which is great. And the systems are holding up, which is also great. What about that international space generally then around who's buying our beef? Are those markets holding up? Is the China zero COVID sort of stance um, getting in the way of things or um, are we ready to be able to sell as, as much as we can produce with a larger herd into these key markets? Your, your last point is right on. We are ready to continue to sell. Your, your point on biosecurity is a very important one. Uh, mainstream media headlines, uh, they may be short-lived on topics, but biosecurity remains as fundamentally and vitally important as ever. Um, our, our major markets, as those in the beef industry know, remain Japan, South Korea, China and the US. Yes, it appears that the China lockdowns and some economic uncertainty may have had a slight effect on China demand, but not too much. Similarly, uh, South Korea's gone off the boil, but that's only partly because it went very much onto the boil in the last month or two, because their government decided to try and fight the impacts of high domestic food prices and food inflation by having a temporary relaxation of tariffs. So our beef was suddenly attractive for imports that temporary moves come off, so so that's slightly gone down. Uh, Japan remains reasonably strong, but the big one to watch will continue to be the US. Uh, and the reason for that is that the US is liquidating its herd at the moment uh, for two reasons. One, a lot of cattle areas in the US are in drought, and two, they are in the natural downside of their herd cycle. So, so they've got a lot of beef coming onto the market. Uh, they're competing with us in some markets more than they have been. Uh, they don't need our beef as much, but uh, that is likely to turn before too long into 2023, and that market will absolutely go up. The other point, as talked about earlier in this podcast, is that our currency remains attractive 
particularly where we trade in US dollars as well. So uh, in addition to Australian beef's quality and food safety, uh, it, it remains attractive to buy compared to a lot of the competitors. Great, thanks, Michael. Okay, Maddie, rock lobster, not um, not relevant, I guess, to a lot of regional Australia, but incredibly important to some. And notably, I guess everyone's uh, well aware of the the China impost on sales, which has made things uh, very difficult for for the industry over the last two or three seasons. So, so fascinating um, to hear from you today on how the industry's traveling and tracking uh, in, a, in a market that's largely ex-China, or is it uh, ex-China? Uh, you tell me, uh, over to you. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, we all know the story, I think, by now of um, the rock lobster industry, the Western and the Southern rock lobster industries, and just how for all the wrong reasons, they were the poster child for COVID and our, and our trade issues with China um, in 2020. So we had, prior to 2020, we had a situation where 90% of our live and chilled exports went into, went into China. So we were a very, very reliant um, uh, market on, the, on the, that Chinese demand, particularly around events like Chinese Lunar New Year and so forth. Um, then as a result of COVID in early 2020 and then China's trade ban on Australian rock lobster exports later in the year, the bottom absolutely fell out of the market. So the past two years has really been a story of uh, domestic producers trying to find those alternative markets. Um, I think everyone will have seen on their local uh, fishmongers uh, shells over Christmases past. Um, we've seen a, a lot more crayfish coming onto the market, which has been gratefully received, but unsurprisingly, it's not quite at the price that China would pay. Um, so while it's been a good alternative market, it really hasn't been um, something that, that that will properly replace the China market. So as a result, we've also had um, the industry going out to look for alternative export markets, unsurprisingly. Um, prob again, probably unsurprisingly, what we've seen is an uptick in exports to Hong Kong and Chinese Taipei. They were the markets that Rock Lobster went into prior to the Chinese-Australia Free Trade Agreement coming into place, and they're usually... Uh, staging points for re-export into China. Um, so, but the the both the price and the volume is far, far, far lower than when it was going direct into China. Also, it's seen some growth and some growth potential in Vietnam, US, Korea, Singapore, and Malaysia, but they're all from very, very small bases, and they obviously are still in their in their infancy. Um, so, the the market, the industry has done very well in starting to find alternative market, uh, export markets. And I think most people in the rock lobster industry would admit to the fact that they were too heavily reliant on China and that whilst it's been an incredibly difficult few years, it's, it's a good thing that we are starting to find some alternative markets, some different trade routes, some different customers, and that will serve the industry a bit better going forward. Um, what has been the key issue outside of volume is, unsurprisingly, price. Uh, so in 2018-2019, Australian export, exports were receiving somewhere around 60,000 US per tonne. Um, now they're down to just under 40,000 US per tonne. So it's been a real cutback in that price. But it's also worth noting that that price is fairly akin to or a little bit higher than what the industry was receiving in early 
in the early 2000s, between 2000 and around 2008, um, uh, prior to that China market booming. So what we're actually seeing, surprisingly, even though it probably doesn't feel like it for many many producers, is we're seeing a bit of a return to normal. Um, So whilst it's difficult, it's obviously been... A, a, a tough, a tough time for many producers. It, what's really clear, and the real message out of this, is that the industry has found some really decent stability. There is no indication that we're going to head further down in either prices or volume or exports. And really, the the growth potential is all the in the upside, and everything is looking more positive than negative for an industry that's been pretty besieged. Yeah, that, that's great to hear and to think it's stabilised at worst um, would be really welcome news and um, I, I agree from what we've seen uh, as a response, the industry's been really well organised and um, efficient in the way they've sought to find new markets. I think everybody agrees uh, a wider distribution of markets would be best. It's always hard to go past the, be- the best price in the market though, isn't it? And often it will come down to the timing because you just can't instantly click into a range of markets to take the volume, take the price. Um, but if, but I think there's a lot of green shoots here and, and let's hope that um, the industry can, can move forward again. And, um, you know, as China comes back one day, it won't be just about China. It will be about some other valuable markets that we've created and we don't feel therefore um, too highly exposed to a, to a single given geography. So, Great to hear. Thank you for the wrap today, Maddie. My pleasure. All right, Michael, let's let's talk greener pastures too. We've just released this paper as a follow-up to our 2012 Greener Pastures edition that we completed in conjunction with Port Jackson Partners. Um, a lot's happened, of course, in that time, and uh, we we always talk about the the growth. Um, we always talk about the challenges, but a lot of the challenges that were well articulated in greener pastures, the original, um, remained. But uh, but I think in general, the industries responded incredibly well to those challenges. And um, I'll hand over to you to, to talk about some of those themes. But uh, for this audience, um, we really look forward to 2023, where we'll be breaking down um, some key elements and, and phases that we've seen uh, as change within our industry and and some ideas around where focus can and should be as best possible to make the most of the continuing opportunity. So uh, look out for the look out for the the media, the roadshows, the the events that we plan to uh, bring these items to life with industry. So, Michael, just what are the the key takeaways of of greener pastures too, perhaps as a teaser for what's coming? Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Uh, For those who don't remember, and and some of us who've been around agriculture for decades uh, remember it well, uh, we at ANZ wrote the Greener Pastures One report, as you say, around a decade ago. And we looked at where agriculture in Australia was right at that point. What were the things that we were all looking ahead to and some of the challenges? And to, to absolutely break it down, if you go back a, a decade or so ago, 
we were wondering about whether we could raise enough money in agriculture to improve all the production that we needed to do, uh, improve all the farms. We were looking at a, a succession change, a generational change, and who was going to buy these farms. We were wondering what the export markets would be like, uh, how Australian agriculture could compete on a global basis. Uh, and, and the first report did some modelling there to say that things were likely to look very good but we needed to raise a reasonable amount of investment uh, to, to fund Australia to be able to achieve that potential. That's where it looked back on. And that's an important part of, part of the report we've just released, because what happened outshone uh, all of our forecasts and expectations. Over the last 10 years, investment capital poured into agriculture uh, within Australia, foreign investment as well, but importantly, and the biggest one from Australian farmers, um, from Australian farmers who built up their operations, we saw family farms grow, uh, perhaps against expectations. We saw generations come back and multi-generations grow on farms as well. And we've absolutely seen the, the industry continue to outshine. Uh, that really has been one of the lessons. What is the Greener Pastures 2, the current reports say going forward? Uh, well, it says we are in a terrific position globally for a number of reasons, partly the work of the, the sector, very much the work of the sector, but also because of a number of global factors, that huge demand and because of things like food uncertainty, geopolitical instability, where countries are desperate to buy quality food from a low political risk country like Australia, which is what we are. So the report talks about things we need to make sure we do over the coming decade. We need to make sure that investment continues to come into agriculture. We need to look at our trading landscape globally and make sure we diversify, we keep good relationships, we make the products that our buyers want to buy, and we're innovative there as well, that we work together, whether it's farmers and their industry groups, whether it's government, whether it's the whole supply chain and stakeholders, banks and others, how everybody works together as much as possible, there'll be disagreements to make things work, how the whole issue of sustainability is embraced and worked on as a positive, but also in a realistic way. And also as far as ag tech, ag tech has gone from being one of those hypothetical things that, that we talk about to something that so many farmers are using, even if some of them don't realise it, uh, and how to embrace that to bring efficiency and further gains. So great successes over the past decade, but a lot to be done in the decade ahead. Thanks, Michael. It sounds fantastic. And um, I think that uh, as we often look to our industry as being, you know, very widely distributed and incredibly fragmented, uh, multi-subsectoral views and, and needs of different geographies, um, but collectively this industry has performed incredibly well uh, notwithstanding all of that. So um, there's perhaps some some lessons to reflect on there as to, well, gee, um, how did that happen so well? What what are the, the, the unseen positives perhaps of all of that that we can continue to leverage into the future? So um, I, I won't take any more from you for now. I, th I hope everybody enjoys the read on this and a, and a re- um, you know, immersion in, in all of these topics um, because things like technology, things like sustainability, um, things like farm composition and, and, and ownership, they draw a really wide range of, of views and opinions 
uh, and we know that there is often not just one right way. Um, so we look forward to to hearing and and being involved in those discussions with everybody. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Mark. Okay, talking sheep and wool. Uh, my pleasure to introduce Elena Barrett uh, to the to the platform. Hi, Elena. Uh, what's happening in the sheep industry at the moment? Well, thanks, Mark. My first comment um, on the sheep industry at the minute is that this continued wet weather that we're seeing is really making for quite a challenging period for many of our producers. Um, we're experiencing everything from logistical challenges through to animal health issues arising from these ongoing rain events that we're seeing um, and indeed, sadly, some flooding in some regions as well. So we're talking anything from disruptions to shearing programs to heavier than average worm or fly burden, uh, significant increase in foot issues, particularly across the southeast of the country, as well as damage to wool. So overall, really no shortage, <coughs> excuse me, of things to do for our sheep producers at the moment. Uh, and with these weather patterns forecast to continue, it is likely that these challenges may continue through the summer as well. But overall, when we're talking markets and prices, uh, our Australian sheep markets really still represent a story of two consecutive years of really strong production and flock recovery that we have seen. So when we look at the data sitting behind that, we've got national lamb slaughter uh, supporting this sentiment completely. We've had over 400,000 lambs processed each week through October, and that's actually an 18% uh, increase on 2021 on last year. So quite significant number of lambs coming through the system for processing uh, even on last year, which was quite high in itself. Mutton throughput also tracking considerably higher than previous years. So close to 150,000 head uh, hit our processes in the last week of October. This was a two and a half year high in terms of mutton slaughter and it demonstrates just the really strong position of our national flock we're seeing plenty of surplus females finding their way onto meat markets as producers can maintain their flock at, um, at good levels as well as sell those surplus ewes through the system. And we haven't really seen numbers like that uh, going through since that real drought-induced destocking period of 2018 through to 2019. So for land markets at least, fortunately, this consistently high supply throughout spring was matched with continued strong export demand. Um, and although we're trading well below 21 levels and we've seen some pretty big weekly fluctuations based on supply and disruptions to um, yardings and that type of thing due to weather, prices really do remain at profitable levels for our producers. So we've got our national lamb indicator uh, sitting in the mid 700 cent mark um, into early November. It's around 150 cents a kilo up on where it was uh, in late July, early August, where we really saw quite a dramatic drop. So we've seen a nice recovery through the spring. Uh, it'll just be a matter of, sort of where that is able to go throughout the summer months as this high supply continues. We're seeing producers who've been able to finish lambs throughout uh, the late winter and into spring rewarded by price. That price spread um, has opened up between heavy and light lambs um, up to as much as 140 cents per kilo, so quite significant at, at times, but averaging around 81 cents premium for the spring to date. This is really a direct contrast to what we saw for the first half of this year, where heavy lambs really struggled to, to maintain that price support, given we had so many processing delays through to, uh, due to COVID. That seems to have all played out now, and um, we're seeing quality lambs at heavy weights being rewarded with price, as buyers can be a bit picky in the market with plenty of Plenty of lambs on offer. 
If we look at the export data, our year to September data um, for exports is up on both 2020 and 2021. Uh, so for 2020, we're at a 10% increase this year. And last year, year to date, we're up 5%. So both significant, significant increases. We're continuing to enjoy really consistent growth in the US market, uh, along with a really steady trade with China. And we've also got benefiting, uh, also rather benefiting from rapid smaller growth markets such as PNG, uh, which for this year to date, we've already surpassed 16,000 tonnes of shipped weight. This is in contrast to last year in the, for the total year, uh, where we sent a little over 9,000 tonnes. So on track to double that export um, tonnage this year, if, um, if that eventuates through to the end of December. Uh, sadly, however, for mutton, this um, uh, price recovery after July, August has sort of failed to match the lamb market. So even though for mutton also, we're seeing really stable year-to-date export demand, um, we haven't seen that being able to support price as much and um, purely just due to the huge supply on the market. Um, mutton indicator prices at the moment sitting around the sort of low 500 cent per kilo mark. Um, but I think for producers, at the end of the day, heavy mutton still making sort of $130 to $160 per head. It's still generating a really valuable contribution to cash flow and the overall enterprise gross margin. So at this point in time, continuing to be a profitable exercise. Uh, as we go forward into the summer and into 2023, uh, we know we're likely to see these weather patterns continuing. We're likely to see volatility in yardings and logistics um, but we're also likely to see plentiful supply continue. We know there's plenty of sheep and lambs out there um, ready to hit our market at varying weights as producers are able to either finish or not finish depending on what their individual situation is. And so we do expect there to be continued pressure on prices across both categories. Uh, moving on to our wool markets now. Um, unfortunately, our wool markets do continue to be impacted by the volatile economic conditions that we're seeing globally. Uh, so we're seeing demand for discretionary high value items such as woolen garments um, across some of our key importing nations under a bit of pressure. And if you turn your mind to um, our key markets across the European nations at the minute where we're coming into uh, the Northern Hemisphere wintertime, we'd normally see a peak in demand for wool. Everyone gets cold, buys a, a new woolen jumper, a new woolen suit or coat. Unfortunately, this year we predict uh, that the cost of energy and other inflationary pressures um, could really dampen this demand for winter uh, and that perhaps is going to keep pressure on Australian wool prices over the coming months. Also to another key market in China, the domestic retail sales are struggling to keep pace. Um, that's a result of the COVID disruptions uh, and lockdowns continuing there. And also it's continuing to disrupt first aid processing, um, which impacts buyer demand week to week, depending on what they can, what they can actually get onshore to process. So to price to date for the 2022-23 season, which of course is still in its infancy, only a few months in, uh, we're trading at an average of just over 1,300 cents per kilo clean for the Eastern market indicator. This is slightly back on 21-22, uh, where for the full year, the average price finished at 13.85. However, still remains in a much better position than we were in 2021, where it actually failed to even reach 1,200 cents on an average basis. So we saw some excitement um, in the industry in the 
first couple of weeks of October. Uh, we saw a price rally over a two-week period by um, see the EMI bounce by almost 100 cents um, clean uh, to a peak of 13.23. However, sadly, um, that short-lived price increase did not continue and it was in fact on the back of uh, largely dropping the Aussie dollar. Um, generally, what we're seeing in wool market is not dissimilar to sheep markets. Production is up, supply is up, uh, and so there's plenty of wool on offer to date around 2.5% up year on year. But of course, as I mentioned, very early into the year, we expect that number to grow significantly as the season tracks ahead, um, meaning buyers um, can be a little bit pickier around quality, but also uh, dampening um, demand as there's plenty of supply out there. Um, so what we're seeing across the microns is that wool prices uh, continue to favour the fine wools. The 17 micron fleeces are still fetching around 2,200 cents per kilo compared to around 1,200 cents for 22 micron wool. So quite a significant price spread even across the finer categories. Of course, once we really go down to the broader non-merino types of 26 micron above, uh, we're looking at prices starting at around the 600 cent per kilo mark, but dropping quite dramatically as that fibre broadens. Uh, at the wrap of the last season, we're able to take a bit of a look um, at the overall export markets for the year. China remaining our dominant buyer of raw wool, uh, took around 80% of raw wool export by weight last year. 5% uh, went to India, 4 to Italy uh, and 4 to the Czech Republic and a, a few smaller markets making up the difference. Um, but interestingly, the data at the close of the last 21-22 season tells the story about the demographics of our industry and the way in which producers are adapting to market demands when it comes to uh, millsing. So we're seeing an all-time high uh, offering of non-millsed wool across all micron hitting the market. Uh, it's now at around 18% of wool is declared as non-millsed. Uh, now, the interesting one I think to pull out, however, is that non-mills under 24.5%, that is the fine wool uh, category of our wool flock, makes up almost 14% of that figure, um, which is encouraging. We've also got a couple more categories in there rapidly increasing, and that is ceased millsing, and that means uh, the property hasn't mills in the last 12 months, but also mills with pain relief, uh, now making up over 40% of wool. Uh, so all of these categories are going in a positive direction. As we move forward, though, into the 2022-23 season, uh, wool production, as I mentioned, forecast to keep continuing along with the national uh, growth, continuing to grow rather along with the national flock, uh, which sadly won't aid in the likelihood of any price recovery, particularly on the back of those pressures we're seeing from key markets across Europe. Thanks, Elena. All right, that's a wrap for today. Thanks, everyone. I hope um, your season goes well for the for the rest of the year. And um, a happy holiday period to to everybody. Hope everyone gets a chance at a break. But as we uh, know, what we do about the season uh, that could take a, a fair bit of um, workload right through the Christmas New Year period. But um, thank you for everybody for for staying tuned with us th uh, throughout the year, and we look forward to. Uh, reconsidering our industry and markets uh, in 2023.
Thanks everyone for participating with us in 2022. Look forward to seeing you all uh, next year. Have a great um, period through December and January and speak soon. Thank you.